My hometown of St. Louis is an awesome baseball town. For those of you who know my story, you know that story. You know the impact of the St. Louis Cardinals and Jack Buck and baseball on my life. You also know it's a phenomenal hockey town. And for those who have read the book On Fire or know the impact of the St. Louis Blues, not only in this community, but also on a little boy named John O'Leary, you know that it's a hockey town as well. What you may not know is the town keeps expanding. We are now, drumroll please, a soccer town as well. That's right. We've been a soccer town for a while, but now it's official with MLS moving to St. Louis. And our friends at Keeley Companies are proud construction partners in building the new stadium, downtown St. Louis, focusing on applying their extensive building experience, their commitment to developing, and then implementing a successful workforce development with diversity inclusion. Keeley Companies CEO and my friend Rusty Keeley said this, we are honored to be part of the project of creating a positive legacy in St. Louis. Learn more about that project and other projects going on at Keeley Companies by visiting them right now online at KeeleyCompanies.com. Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired Podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Well, my friends, welcome back to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. The gentleman that I get to bring into your life today, I have the honor and the privilege of doing so, is an American Advertising Federation Hall of Fame recipient. He was profoundly successful working with some organizations that you may have heard of, like Dodge and American Express and Taco Bell, among many, many others, receiving hundreds of awards for the worthy work that he did. But we're not going to spend the majority of the podcast today talking about that work. Instead, we'll spend the majority of our conversation learning what led to that work and ultimately what it means for you. You're going to learn about his childhood. You're going to learn about what it was like for him growing up, the son of two parents who both were deaf. We'll talk about some of the lessons that he learned from them meeting others where they are, not using challenges or handicaps as an excuse but as a way to meet others empathetically and passionately to make a difference in their lives, celebrating where we are from. You're going to hear about a speech that he loved where the words never give up were spoken. It's a beautiful story there. You're going to learn about that successful career. Yes, indeed. But you're going to also hear how it led him to a chance, beautiful encounter with a saint named Mother Teresa, her impact, her humility, her stature. And are you ready for this one? Her feet. I'm telling you right now, it may sound strange right now, but when you hear the story, you're going to be so moved by that. You're going to love this episode. So what I'm going to encourage you to do right now is buckle up. Get ready for the ride by grabbing your favorite Live Inspired journal. Grab your favorite pen. Grab your favorite warm drink, coffee, tea, ice water, cocktail, and get ready to be moved and inspired and encouraged to do more in your life with my friend and soon to be yours. His name is Bill McKendry. Bill, welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. Ah, glad to be here. 
Well, man, I am all January morning <laughs> <laughs> and a busy one for you. I know you had a book that released earlier this week and we'll come back and talk about that here in a moment. But before we do, I just gave you a long, roaring, warm introduction. But when you have an opportunity to introduce yourself to a new friend, you extend your right hand, they shake it and they say, what's your name? And you say, I'm Bill McKendry. What do you do, Bill? How do you respond to that? That's always a tough one because I, I got too many things going at once. Ultimately, right now for today, I would extend my hand and say I'm Bill McHenry, author of Do More Good and founder of the organization domoregood.org. Well, those usually beg the question, tell me more about that. So what, what is domoregood.org? Yeah, domoregood.org is, is an organization that uh, we started recognizing that nonprofit organizations, they, there's some really key things that they need in order to be successful as an organization. And when you really think about it and take it down to really core basics, what nonprofit organizations need in order to be successful is generally people's time and people's money. Mm. And, uh, uh, and what they, I always make sure that they understand that they need people's discretionary time and discretionary money. You, you think of the phrase, do more good. And you say, nonprofit organizations are already doing good. What is it? What is the what is what is it that we can add to the mix that allows them to do more good? And it is basically comes down to communications, marketing, branding, getting your message out and getting people engaged in your message. And so, DoMoreGood.org focuses on you know it's for all practical purposes it's an educational nonprofit. You mentioned a word there a moment ago, communication, communication, communicating even earlier. We learned so much about communicating from the place where we grew up. You grew up in Michigan. I grew up down here in Missouri. I use my hands a lot when I speak because that's what I saw my mother do. Yeah. I speak quickly because my dad speaks quickly. So we learn a lot from our parents. And I find it so wild, Bill, about how you grew up and the parents that guided you forward to understand the power of communicating and sometimes yeah. communicating a little differently. Would you talk about growing up in Michigan and talk about your mom and dad, how they communicated and maybe how that influenced you? Yeah, the key to that is understanding, you know, the family that I was born into and the family that I was born into or both my parents were deaf since birth. So sign language mm -hmm. was, their, was their key language, which meant that was my first language. Even before I spoke, uh, I, I had learned sign language. And, you know, today they'll tell you, you know, that's fantastic for babies because before they can form right. their own language, to be able to speak sign language just relieves a lot of frustration for them, right? I can't say that I that that was the case for me, but at the, at the same time, though, I did grow up in a in a family where that that was required. Like anybody that grows up in a situation that's not quote normal, you know, growing up, you're kind of frustrated. You say, you know, why why am I have I been given this deck of cards, right? And why do I have to, you know, be an interpreter for my parents? And so there's a lot of that. I think animosity growing up for me, especially as a teenager and things like that. But at the same time, I can look back at uh, how my parents raised me and look at the situation in which I was raised within and say, it really did shape me for who I am today. And the bottom line is, is I learned very early to become a voice for people who need help. Mm. And, uh, and that's a passion that's just like in my DNA. I can't, I can't get it out of me because it's just who I am and what I'm about. But my parents also taught me beyond that, though, too, was that the, the concept of no matter what disability you have or handicap or disadvantage that you think that you have, you can't allow it to be a disability or a handicap. Matter of fact, 
many times, you know, it is actually an advantage and you have to learn how to use it to your advantage that makes you unique or makes you stand out or what, whatever it is that you, you, but you need to put that through a different filter than you've been able to put it through before. And my parents never used their disability as a handicap and uh, they never used it as an excuse. And I remember being young uh, one time, one of the most memorable things that ever happened between my dad and, and, and somebody else who was deaf was we were coming out of a department store in the parking lot. A deaf guy approached my parents and this is around 4th of July, he's handing my dad a small American flag hmm. and asking for a donation. My dad doesn't know this guy's deaf. This guy doesn't know my, my dad is deaf, right? And he's handing him a flag and my dad is thinking the guy's raising money for veterans causes, right? So he's about ready to take you know, a dollar out of his wallet and give this guy a dollar for the American flag that he's getting. But then he gets the note and the note says, I'm deaf and I need help. Please give me money for this American flag. We spent the next two hours in the parking lot as my dad berated this guy to tell him, you're using your deafness as an excuse not to work. And you may think that that's fine for you today. However, I'm telling you right now, I'm a guy that, that works. I don't want people to think that I can't work because I'm deaf and mm -hmm. you're out there communicating something that you shouldn't be communicating because deaf people can work. We are capable. We are able. We don't need to be wandering parking lots and asking for money. And so he's like, he basically tells this guy, you know, you are making it hard for other deaf people by doing what you're doing. But in the meantime, he also said, what can I do for you? Yeah. You know, to help you find a job. And let's talk about that. And so he didn't just stop at that. So watching my parents work, they just had it within their own DNA and probably because they had to work so hard for everything that they got that they just weren't going to allow any excuses. And, uh, and so those two things, when I look at my background and saying, you know, I'm not going to let any detriment that I have be an excuse for, for not accomplishing something. Right. And then number two, you have to be an advocate and a voice for people who need help. And that's part of what we're here for is to help each other. And uh, you, you can't be afraid to step in uh, and, and do that. So, so it's a powerful story and we could spend the remainder of the podcast unpacking it. I think where I want to take it though, is you grew up in this family signing. Your first words were with your hands. And the first words you understood were with theirs. When, at what age, did you realize that the childhood that you were experiencing was radically different than the childhood of every one of your little neighbors and friends from school? Yeah, it's as, as long as I can remember. Funniest questions I always used to get when I was a kid, you know, it's like either from a, a schoolmate or from their parents. It's like, hey, what's it like to have deaf parents? Right, right. And I'd go ahead and be like, I don't know, because I don't know what it's like to have hearing parents. So I don't, I don't know, I don't know how, to, how to compare these two, right? Yeah, I knew right from the very beginning, as long as I can remember that, you know, we were a unique family. Uh, but I have to say that, you know, at least in our community, we were, we were very well accepted and people were rooting for us. And it wasn't like people were trying to give us charity or anything like that, you know, and feeling sorry for us. But we were seen as, as unique. And, mm. uh, and some of that, quite honestly, was celebrated. People really enjoyed that we were a unique family and that we did... You know, my parents ultimately had four kids and all of us went to college and we were, we were a poor family. And so that was always kind of like, wow, 
for parents, you know, any parent to have four kids go to college, you know, right. for, a, for a very blue collar family is, is an accomplishment, but for a, to have deaf parents who neither one of them really graduated from high school uh, to have that done is uh, pretty remarkable. So let, let's talk about that college experience for you. You're in Michigan with mom and dad, three siblings, and you leave to head out west to Colorado. Yeah. You went to the University of Denver. What, what were you seeking? What did you imagine doing later on in life? I grew up in, here in Michigan and West Michigan, and, and uh, we didn't travel a lot around Michigan. So, you know, I, I have since come back, you know, obviously, and, and uh, have, have learned to fall back in love in Michigan uh, like I never have before because we're actually traveling the state and seeing things. Uh, but you know, I had it in my mind that uh, uh, I, I had actually gone on a youth group trip uh, where we had visited every state west of the Mississippi over one summer. Wow. Uh, and it was a bus trip. And, uh, and, and how we wound around the country, uh, we ended up coming into Colorado through the, it would be the northwest corner of Colorado. So up by like Steamboat Springs and yes. things like that. And when we came into Colorado that way, and I remember seeing Steamboat Springs uh, early in the morning on our, uh, out the window on our bus. And I just got up in my head. I was 14 years old at the time. And I said, I, I've never seen anything more beautiful than this. And this is someday I would like to live here. And so I ended up applying for uh, you know, aid and scholarships to be able to go to the University of Denver. And, and uh, you know, fortunately, because of my unique background, because of some of the things that I had accomplished, uh, I was able to get uh, a full ride scholarship and aid to go to the University of Denver and, uh, and live out my Colorado dreams. Uh, Colorado is always still very important to me. We, uh, you know, when I, even when I moved back, I started my career in Colorado with Tracy Locke, BBDO, and, uh, you know, worked on big brands like American Express and Dodge and Taco Bell doing advertising campaigns for, for those brands. But when we came back to Michigan, because uh, my wife and I are high school sweethearts and we wanted to, you know, be back in, back in this area and she missed water like crazy. We, you know, we even right today in Grand Haven, we live on uh, Lake Michigan and it's just, you know, it's just beautiful here. But uh, when I opened up an office in Grand Rapids, Michigan, my second office was in Colorado Springs. Uh, and so maintained a Colorado connection and still to this day, you know, a lot of my uh, best friends and biggest clients and uh, are, are based in Colorado. And we could spend a lot of time unpacking American Express and Taco Bell and Dodge and some of the programs and uh, campaigns that you did with them. Fascinating work, really, like really, really cool stuff. 1994, though, seems like an inflection point. What, what was it that you were experiencing in corporate work that was not stealing your energy and soul, but you recognized something was missing. Something was definitely missing. And um, I was 33 years old at the time. And uh, we had moved back. I already had a successful career doing big brand work, came back home. Uh, I opened up my own advertising agency. At, the, at this point, I had uh, about, uh, I think, 16 employees. And, you know, uh, by uh, Grand Rapids, Michigan standards, uh, an advertising agency with 16 employees was considered massively large, right? You know, so, <laughs> so it wasn't that big, but uh, for our market, it was, it, was, it was considered to be very successful. I reconnected with a friend of mine who actually I met originally in Denver uh, and his career had taken him on to uh, uh, Leo Burnett in Chicago. And, you know, if you ever taken uh, uh, downtown river tours in Chicago and they show you all the fancy buildings in downtown Chicago, one that they always point out is the Leo Burnett building, right? You know, they've just, uh, 
really the Chicago School of Advertising uh, right there. And, uh, and so Jim Hainan is, uh, was, was this uh, friend of mine and he, he had achieved such success at Leo Burnett that he was one of their top creative people and actually had done work on McDonald's and Disney and Gatorade. And Jim says, man, you guys, you gotta be like really happy. You know, you had the big agency thing. You started your own agency thing. Now you got this national client. You're going to do some TV advertising. Everything should be lined up where you're really happy. And I said, but I'm not. And I'm trying to figure out why that is. And uh, he says, well, what's your concern? And I said, well, this, this doorknob company. So let's say we just hit it out of the park on this doorknob company. And, uh, and, they, and they're number three in market share right now. And we take them to number one. I go, at the end of my career, you know, someday I'm going to die. And on my gravestone, my biggest fear right now is it's going to say Bill McKendry was the best seller and marketer of doorknobs in the history of the doorknob business. And I go, that's not what I want my gravestone to read. You know, no, nothing against Weiserlock, nothing against doorknobs, nothing against any of this stuff. But I, I, I just, I just, I just looked at that and I said, you know, if this is, if my, if my life were to end after this campaign, would I have accomplished anything that I had hoped to accomplish in my life besides making money and winning a few awards? Jim looks at me at that point and he says, well, what are you trying to say? I go, I go, Jim, did God make us so that we would sell doorknobs, Taco Bells, cars, hamburgers, credit cards? Is this why we were really made? Or is our purpose in life even greater than this? Should our talent be utilized to do even greater things than these? And I had known Jim for a long time, but in the big advertising world, there's two things you don't talk about. You don't talk about religion and you don't talk about politics. And Jim asked me at that point, he said, Bill, are you a person of faith? I said, yes, I am a person of faith. He goes, well, does your faith happen to be uh, Christian? I go, yes, my faith happens to be Christian. And he said, if we were to do something different, how would we do something that would align with our greater purpose, what we believe is our greater purpose, to do more good, right? So we sat down. That started as a lunch discussion, and it went till 4 a.m. the next morning. And we actually mapped out what we thought was going to be a world-changing advertising agency that would dedicate at least 50% of its effort to work with nonprofit organizations to help them do more good. So I'm going to jump in. And uh, first of all, it's a beautiful story and creation, Genesis story. One of the very first clients that I lead you to, I believe is called Mel Trotter's Ministry. Yeah. And something that surprised me learning more about your work and your impact is when you reveal to them the pitch, you yeah. know, you story boys standing out, you come into the conference room and many of us have been part of conversations like this. The gentleman in charge, the decision maker at the table started weeping when he saw you pitch what you were thinking about for the, for the advertising. Why? why, why did you bring this guy to his to, to tears? So Mel Trotter Ministries at, at the time, you have to realize it was a 95-year-old rescue mission. What we learned through the insights is that in the information gathering process, as we got to know uh, homeless people, one of the things that I had coming into the situation was I didn't really understand homelessness. Right. Like, just like I under, like growing up with deaf parents, there's a lot of people that don't understand what it's like to be deaf, right? And uh, or even understand deafness. I didn't understand what causes homelessness. Quite honestly, I came at it and said, you know, uh, 
why can't these people just get a job? Why can't they stop drinking? Why can't they stop doing drugs? Are they just lazy or what's going on here, right? I didn't have any comprehension of what causes homelessness. And when, during the process of doing our discovery, what I learned from these homeless men was, you know, there's usually something pretty dramatic that happened in their life, whether they were, whether they had a death of a spouse or a family member, or they served in the military, or they had a mental illness, or uh, they had an addiction problem, or that, and, you know, an addiction ran uh, pervasively throughout their families, uh, you know, and it usually just wasn't one of those things. It was usually one of those things compounded by another thing, compounded by another thing. And ultimately, the insight that we got was that people who are homeless generally start with some issues that compound them, themselves, and they end up drowning in their own circumstances. And when we came up with that insight, we said, what kind of communications could we create that allows people to understand that homeless people are drowning in their own circumstances and we gotta help them get out. So we create a commercial. The whole commercial uh, is actually shot underwater. And but, but when you come into the scene, the original scene of the commercial, it starts with a woman sitting in an alley and you, she looks like a homeless woman who maybe has an alcohol or a drug addiction problem and she's sitting in an alley by herself. And this looks like a city alley with you know brick road and a brick background and garbage thrown throughout, right? And you come into this into this commercial, and but you don't know that you're underwater. And then as the commercial starts to uh, roll out, there are actually people who come into the scene of the commercial from above, and they float into the alley scene, and bubbles are coming out of their mouth, and you realize everything that you just started watching is happening underwater, right? So that's. That's how the commercial is. That's the basic premise of the commercial. And the narration comes in and says, the average American family is only three paychecks away from being homeless. Add to that substance abuse, mental illness, death of a spouse or a family member. And pretty soon you find yourself in pretty deep water. You know, and as you're laying out those issues, people are dropping into this alley scene and becoming a part of the homeless collection in this alley but they're drowning in their own circumstances. And then it says at Mel Trotter Ministries, we not only provide food and shelter for people, but we provide a way out. Mm. And at that point, as one of the homeless men are drowning and coming into this alley scene, a hand reaches in from above and grabs the shoulder of one of these people and brings them to the surface. I mean, listen, dude. I'm moved. I read it. I've heard you say it a couple of times in various talks and conferences. And to hear you say it again today, to have visualized that I'm moved. And you moved him, a man who lives this every day, this layman, to tears. Tell us why, though. Because to me, Bill, that's one of the most beautiful parts of the story is as he stands up and says, here's why I'm crying. So we present the storyboard to him and he puts his head down. And we're all like, "Uh uh-oh, you know. (laughs) We made, we made him cry, you know, and we thought it was for obviously, you know, you know we were skeptical advertising people. We were like, crap, what did you say? You know, what did we do? You know, but then, and then finally he looked at us. He said, number one, I did not expect this at all. This level of storytelling. This is a level of parable storytelling that's biblical in nature, right? It also is something that I expect from a pastor or a teacher or, you know, somebody who, you know, who has this inspirational uh, ability to tell stories. He's, I, I, he said, I didn't expect it from advertising guys or an ad, you know, and he said, I just finally realized that 
you know, that's the power of storytelling that you guys use and why, why big advertisers are so successful at what they do is because they, they use the power of parable to get people to understand situations and even situations that they themselves have not lived. And he said, but let me get up and show you why I'm really crying. And he, then he stands up and he takes us around the corner from the conference room that we started this presentation in, and he points down the hallway and there's this massive dumpster that's at this rescue mission, a construction level dumpster. You know, if you're familiar with, with those dumpsters you know, where they throw sheetrock in and, you know, all kinds of lumber materials and stuff like that. It was that big. And he said, number one, I'm, I'm moved by your storytelling. I didn't expect it at all. But number two, he says, you have to realize the world that I live in every day. You see that dumpster that's down at the end of this hallway? And we're like, yeah. He goes, do you know why we have to have a dumpster that big? I'm like, no. And he goes, he goes, let me tell you something before I even tell you that. He goes, it's our fourth largest expense as a, as a, as a ministry is that dumpster. They're giving us something, worn out clothes, broken furniture, broken appliances. None of it works. They're unloading it here thinking they're giving us a donation, but they're not giving us a donation. They're giving us their garbage. And so therefore we have to have a garbage dumpster haul their donations away every week. No matter who you're serving, that you don't do anything but your best. If you're gonna do good, do great at the same time. You wrote in the book about Howard Schultz from Starbucks saying that that building a brand is easy. It's really actually very easy. Every single thing matters. Yeah. And I think whether it's a not-for-profit or it's a marriage, pursuing someone that you love, uh, living a, a, a meaningful, worthy life, every little thing matters. And I think what, what your friend, Reverend Layman, reminded you is that the, many people were given trash, but you were providing the very best and that, that matters. And there's another story. I know there's so many from your book and from your life that do matter, Bill, but the story of you meeting Mother Teresa there's a lot from that story. We could talk about Sister Sylvia, the, the line she gave you, the one you still use around margin. Maybe we'll talk about that if we have a little bit of time at the end. For me, when I heard you share the story, you've only shared it in this one way, one time that I'm aware of. You talk about meeting this executive, Mother Teresa, in her mid-80s, and there were several things about her that really moved you. Yeah, obviously, uh, her life is profoundly moving, who she serves, the effect of it. All this is big, but there were some physical things that moved you about Mother Teresa. Would you talk about that? Yeah, you know, I, I, you're right. I don't share this story very often because I mean, I, I have a hard time sometimes getting through this story just emotionally, just because I, uh, when I, when I, when I revisit this moment in my in my life, it's just for whatever reason, it, it just moves me. It just moves me. You know, it moves my heart and my. Uh, I, it's just, it's a difficult story for me, but you know, it was a big, big event. You know, I mean, we're filming mother Teresa. We knew, we knew the gravity of what, what was happening. And, you know, and we were actually filming her in a convent in Washington, DC that evening, she was going to be honored at the white house for 40 years of work in Calcutta. Right. But mother Teresa at this point, I mean, she's a year away from passing away. We didn't know that she's as big as she ever was. I mean, as ubiquitous as, you know, as, as you can imagine, right? Everybody knows who Mother Teresa is at this point. I fully expected her to be humble and have a lot of humility and be exactly who she uh, is. As a matter of fact, she was actually even more humble uh, and, 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 and more low key 
than I imagined. Uh, and uh, just an absolutely beautiful person. The thing that really stuck with me uh, and still sticks with me over these years is that when she came into the room that we were going to film her in, we had a crew, we had, we had two 35 millimeter cameras. We had a crew of like 60 people. This was a big production. We didn't want to miss a word that she said. And we wanted to make sure we had every camera angle right, all the lighting right. We didn't have much time with her and uh, just everything had to be right. And she was actually she even expressed, I'm kind of nervous. You know, you've got so many people here and so much, so much, so much camera equipment. You would think somebody like Mother Teresa by this point, I mean, this is, you know, Gandhi level person, right? You know, Nelson Mandela, Martin Luther King level person that you're dealing with right now at this point. You would think that, that she wouldn't be nervous about nothing, right? But she just, she just flat out just said, this is really, for whatever reason, very, I'm very nervous about this, you know? And so I, you know, we assured her that we would make everything comfortable for her and that she could just focus on a few people and we'd, you know, softball the questions and, you know, we would make sure that we made her look good and that everything was done right. Uh, so knowing all that, when I opened the door for her to enter a room of 60 people and, 30, and two 35 millimeter cameras, I didn't want to treat her like a celebrity. I didn't want to stare at her like, you know, like here's Mother Teresa, right? So. I opened the door for her to walk into this room. And instead of looking at her, I chose to look at the floor. And as she walked into the room, it's, it's shocking how small she is, you know, or how small she was. I mean, it was, I, I knew she was small, but she was even smaller in stature than, than I had imagined. I mean, it's just, she was a very small person. And so I, I kind of caught the top of her head, even though I was looking down because she's so small. Uh, but then I looked down as I was looking down. So the, really the first thing I, I see physically of Mother Teresa as she's walking into this room is her feet. And she's walking in sandals and her feet are completely exposed in these sandals. And on, on one aspect uh, of, of looking at her, her feet, I was just struck with that's the most rugged pair of feet I think I have ever seen in my entire life. You know, so I'm on one side of your brain, you're going, oh my gosh, what have those feet been through to have ended up looking like that, right? You know, every day, probably walking in the streets of Calcutta with no sandals, you know, through conditions that none of us would want to walk through to serve the poor for 40 years, right? That those feet were just, unbelievably wounded and unbelievably scarred uh, and in many ways the ugliest pair of feet I've ever seen in my entire life but that's not how I felt how I felt was I'm looking at the feet of a saint I'm looking at the feet of an angel I am looking at the feet of, of the most beautiful pair of feet I've ever seen in my entire life because those feet had done the work of 40 years in Calcutta, the kind of work that nobody else but Mother Teresa has done uh, and you know, in that part of the world. And you just looked at that and it was just so moving. It was so memorable to just be able to see that and just say to myself, I was just, you can't help but be unbelievably humbled, right? That somebody like that is known for serving people the way that she did. And that right there was a visual reminder 
of all the hard work that she had done. And it was just, I don't know, it's, it's really, you know, hard to imagine, you know, telling somebody here, I'm looking at maybe one of the least attractive pair of feet I've ever seen, but at the same time, the most beautiful thing I've ever seen in my life. So what I want you to know is I've interviewed 400 plus individuals from all over the world, from all kinds of topics. And afterwards, I usually write a newsletter, something from their story, but it's always afterwards, always. Yeah. I've never once written about the individual beforehand. And when I heard that story about Mother Teresa, I immediately turned off the recording of you sharing it and just wrote this beautiful, if I can be so braggish for a moment, story about the beauty of, of ugliness. And what, you know, what we pursue in the world, perfect face, perfect nose, perfect, get rid of the wrinkles, get our feet manicured, all this stuff we do. And here you see a saintly woman bent over near the end of her life who has only affected hundreds of millions of people around the world with some of the ugliest feet we can imagine because she's doing the work. We only have a, a time for a little bit more, but um, you have been influenced not only by the organizations you represented, by Mother Teresa and Sister Sylvia, among others, Peter Drucker, one of your great inspirations. Yeah. But you also mentioned in one of your talks, four books that have deeply moved you that you never read. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to breeze through the most inspirational books you've never read, but maybe you should, but yes. in the meantime... Uh, four books. Here they come very, very quickly to you. Differentiate or die. Many times it's either the title of the book or somebody sharing something with me about the book that causes me never to feel like I have to read the book because I feel like I already got the nugget that I that I need. Right. So the first book is Differentiate or Die, which is very it was handed to me by a client saying, hey, Bill, if there's one marketing book you got to read, you got to read this one. Differentiate or Die. I don't think I need to read the rest of this book. <laughs> right, thank you. You know, I think the whole book is probably about how to differentiate and I get it, you know? And so, you know, when you think about uh, the success of an organization and I, and I, and you know, when people always ask me, you know, what, what are, what's the, one of the key things about marketing that I should understand? It is exactly that, that marketing is not about bringing information to the marketplace. That's for the news media to bring information to the marketplace. Marketing is about bringing differentiating and positioning to the marketplace. Mm -hmm. So when you talk about yourself, when you talk about your, your organization, when you talk about your business from a marketing standpoint, the thing that you want to do is differentiate because it ultimately, if you don't have the ability to differentiate yourself, your organization is either going to die or it's not going to live the full life that it deserves. So speaking of dying, one of the other books on that list, and we won't go through all, all four of them today. I'll let individuals pick up the book that they should read all of called Do More Good. I'm sure these are all great books. I have several copies of each one of them. But, well, you know. Right. Give them away to others who actually will read it. But, but the other book, speaking of death, is Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And one of the reasons why you love that, the title of it so much and the inside of it so much from what you understand is, is it the second habit? What's the habit of, of beginning? Yeah, the second, it would turn out, somebody explained to me, you know, as they were handing me the book, you know, I got to read this book, especially the second one, and you know, the second habit. And I go, well, what's that one? And they were like, start with the end in mind. And that, that whole idea of, you know, Stephen Covey has you write an obituary for, you know, what it is that you want to accomplish either in your life or as a business or as an organization, right? And so when you write the obituary, you know, 
that really sets up your ultimate goals of what you really want to be about as an organization or as a person or as a business, right? And so he says, start by writing that. Yeah. And then put together a plan to accomplish that. So start with the end in mind. And you saw your gravestone as at my reading, you realized, listen, uh, I love that work, but I want my life to be remembered for something bigger. Exactly. Bill, for the last 30 plus years, you've been living into something even bigger. One of the ways you've been doing so is uh, another organization that you help partner with had a sign behind their front desk, fail harder, fail right. harder. What does that mean to you? Yeah, so it's actually an advertising agency based in Portland, Oregon, and uh, the name is Wyden and Kennedy. And you may not know Wyden and Kennedy by name, but you know their work. Uh, uh, they're the advertising agency, lead advertising agency for Nike. And so they're the ones that came up with Just Do It, maybe one of the greatest taglines in the history of marketing, right? And that organization uh, is just known uh, for creating breakthrough work. And, uh, and really pushing the envelope in their particular industry of what is possible and, and, uh, what, and pushing everything to its best, right? Yeah. And their perspective on that is, you know, if you're not pushing yourself so far that you could potentially fail, then you're not pushing yourself far enough. And so they give the license to everybody. And this literally, it looks like it's carved in rock behind their reception desk and you walk in uh, to their lobby and it says, fail harder. I love it. Yeah. And so basically they, they, they encourage an environment that says, don't be afraid to fail because until you're pushing things to that extreme, you're probably not pushing yourself hard enough. Right. I used to, like, I used to be a very avid skier and uh, people would, uh, I remember, you know, you're teaching people to ski and stuff like that. And people brag at the end of their day. It's like, I didn't even fall. You know, <laughs> I must be really good. And I'd say, well, if you didn't really fall, then you weren't really trying hard enough, you know, to really push yourself to another level of skiing. Well, the same thing can be true about business, nonprofit organization or personal things. You can't be afraid to fail. And Bill, as we wrap up, we have seven quick fire questions that we guide folks through. So hang on for it. Okay. I know we're uh, bumping up against the wire, but here we go. Uh, this time I'm going to make you not only tell me the title of a book, but actually one you read that was deeply meaningful for you. So first question out of the box is this, Bill, what is the most impactful book you've ever actually read? <laughs> well, I always have to start by saying the Bible, uh, but outside of the Bible, uh, I would say uh, Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis. And uh you know, I'm, I'm all, all a do more good kind of guy, uh, but it's also important to recognize uh, that that there there are there is evil out there and there is bad, and how do how do we fight that mm. and how do we overcome that? And uh, I believe good always prevails and good always wins, uh, but it requires work and it requires mm. excellence and uh, and that's part of why I believe that we we need to be very well trained as soldiers of good, because not everything is good out there. How do, how do, we, how do we beat it back? And in that book, C.S. Lewis exposes, uh, I guess, how pervasive um, you know, bad can be and how quiet can be. Uh, and, uh, and so uh, it's, a, it's a deeply disturbing book, and, uh, but it's, one of the, it's the most profound book I've ever read besides the Bible. Mm. 
what's one positive characteristic or one trait that you grew up with in the great state of Michigan that you wish you exhibited as brilliantly today? I, I have to give my mom credit for this. You know, uh, my mom, my mom instilled in, in us uh, uh, optimism that was just over the top. Uh, and so uh, she believed everything was possible. Uh, mm-hmm. And she believed at any moment we could win the lottery. And, uh, uh, and so uh, I, I would just say that I grew up with that optimism. I really, really felt that, uh, you know, over time, it's easy to get beat down uh, and, uh, and then wallow in some of your failures and, and, uh, and wonder whether you can do that or not. Uh, so I would say that, that, that just that over the top optimism, uh, the feeling like you know, that you can do it no matter what uh, is something that uh, I've, I had, I've always had uh, a sense of that from my mom. As an adult, it gets harder and harder to maintain that. If your home caught fire and all living things are out, but you had had an opportunity to run in and grab one item, what one item would you come racing back out with, Bill? Uh, my laptop. <laughs> <laughs> Boring, but I'll take it, man. If you could sit on a bench, how about overlooking a sunset on Lake Michigan and have a nice, long, beautiful conversation with anyone living or deceased? Who would you want to be seated next to? Jesus obviously would be number one for me, but that to me is a uh, is an obvious answer. Uh, but you know, I would go back to C.S. Lewis. I mean, C.S. Lewis is a is a is a hero of mine. I've read so much of his work. Uh, I would love to be able to spend time with him and uh, and really dig in and understand mm-hmm. more about how he thought. And uh, he was an interesting character in the sense that he came to his faith very late in life and actually fought uh, the idea of coming to faith. Uh, and, uh, and ended up coming to faith in his fight of um, not trying to come to faith. So he's just a very interesting characteristic character for me. Great way to come to faith. Yeah. You know, to, to not be cradled into it, but to fight against it and then to recognize the vitality and vibrancy within it and the truth within it. What, what's the best advice that C.S. Lewis or Sister Sylvia or Mother Teresa or your mother or father, or anyone else that you respected ever gave you? So the best advice that you've ever received, Bill, is... My dad was a huge Winston Churchill fan, right? I mean, you know, if, if my dad were alive, you were asking that question of who's the one person he would want to interview. He would, I mean, I know he would say Winston Churchill, mm-hmm. but that was given after World War II and there was much expectation that he was going to give this really phenomenal speech. And uh, he, he, you know, ends up being never, never, never give up, right? Mm-hmm. And I think the follow-up question was, you know, do you wish you would have uh, said a little more? or done anything more. And he goes, yeah, I, I wish, I wish I could have made the speech a little shorter. <laughs> I could talk for hours about anything, I think. Yeah, but uh, my whole life is trying to get messages down to very simple and straightforward answers or direction. The wisdom that Churchill had at that time was saying, if I could give these college graduates advice, this is what I would, I would say. I, w- I would look at that and say that that, that speech for me spoke volumes of what it really takes, you know, in order to accomplish really big things in this world. What advice would you give yourself at age 20? It took me till 33 to really get on this track of uh, do more good. I believe every part of my journey was important to getting to 33. I only wish I could have gotten a lot more serious about doing more good earlier in my life. Not that I was doing bad. It was just, I was just doing selfish things. You know, I was uh, getting an education. I was getting a job. I was getting a home. I was 
doing all the things that I thought were incredibly important only to find out, you know, that, that stuff really, yeah, that stuff's important, but it's not that important, right? Like you said, if I were to lose everything, right? If I were, you know, if I were to lose my home, if I were, you know, if I were to lose all my possessions and stuff like that, you just get more possessions, you just get another house, right? You know, and especially when you start having kids and stuff like that, and you realize, you know, like before we waited to have kids for a long time. And I said, I, I said, I was sold a bill of goods and the idea that I had to have, you know, two cars in the garage and a, you know, and a house and everything in order for my kids to be happy. All you find out when you have kids, all they really want is your time, mm. you know, and, and your attention. And so here you've, you've created all these distractions and, uh, but all they really want is your time and your attention, right? Getting to the, 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 the simple things in life that really make life valuable and, and worth living. And the bottom line is, is you know, that make, makes life what it is. I mean, what makes life rich aren't all these possessions. It's about what you could do and the impact and your purpose and why you were made. Now I can look back at my life and I can say, I was made to do this. I was trained to do this my entire life. Every situation and every circumstance that I was put into growing up has made me the person that I am today. I'm, I'm glad I got there. I feel sorry for the people that never get there. I just wish I would have got there earlier. Well, we're going to leave it where it, the story almost began. You talked about imagining your gravestone. So here we go. We're going to imagine it a little bit more. It has been said, Bill McKendry, that all great people can have their lives summed up in one sentence. How would you like your one sentence to read? Here's a man that was willing to do more good. Bill McKendry, my friend, great leader, recipient of countless awards. You have done much good. We are grateful for your time and your work and your impact in the community. It does matter. Thank you. My friends, that is the great Bill McKendry. The book, Do More Good, I encourage you to check it out. My name is John O'Leary, and today is your day. Live inspired. Bill made time to join us this week in the midst of the release of his first book, and it's doing so well already. It's called Do More Good. I can't think of a better example of that than my new friend, Bill McKendry. I told you on the front side, you were going to love this conversation. And I have a feeling right now, if you're still listening to my voice, you did. You did. For me, there are so many specific takeaways. But when I listen, and like you, I'm, I'm always listening for that one thing. For me, the thing that moved me most, yeah, the Churchill thing. Yes, the way his parents raised him. Yes, the work that he does currently. But yes, when he bowed his head in the presence of greatness, and then as he's looking down, he looks at the top of Mother Teresa's head, walking in this short in stature woman, massive in heart leader. And what immediately he notices is her feet, her warped and tired out and damaged and broken and perfect feet. When I think about what I long for in my life. It is eventually to walk into a room to be interviewed by someone and for them not to notice John as a podcast host or even as a writer, speaker, burn survivor, parent, husband, all these other jobs that, that I have. I hope they see broken, tired out, damaged, used up, beautiful feet, 
feet that were called to service and responded faithfully to that call. I mean, that, that, that is my desire now on my life. And it's my desire because of this conversation that I had with my friend, Bill. If you enjoyed this episode as much as I enjoyed bringing it to you, I encourage you right now, why not tell your friends that you work out with or worship with or work with or hang out with in life about the Live Inspired podcast, this one specifically with Bill McKendry. But did you know that there are hundreds of other episodes we've recorded in the past that you can step into on demand at your convenience at no cost? And if you're confused right now on where to even begin, I, I, th I thought as Bill was talking about his experience of Mother Teresa with one of our other guests, my little baby girl and I, her name is Grace Elizabeth O'Leary. She and I were watching a movie together called Miracle Season. It's this remarkable story of a young volleyball team in Iowa and their star player tragically passes away. And it's the story of this coach that galvanizes this team together to live out the legacy of their star player. She was a star player not only because of her talent, but even more so because of her heart. And it was the heart of this young girl named Caroline that pulled this community together, galvanized this team, and led to what turned out to be the miracle season. The story is portrayed by a woman named Helen Hunt. But Helen Hunt portrays my guest. Her name was Coach Kathy Bresnahan. And we had her on the Live Inspired podcast several years ago. And if you want to check out that episode, you can find that at johnolearyinspires.com forward slash podcast. It is episode 89. So episode 89, you're going to hear a wonderful guest of mine, Coach Kathy Bresnahan. You're going to love her heart. You're going to love her story. I promise you that. So episode 89, check it out today. Anywhere that you pull down your podcast or visit me right on the website itself at johnolearyinspires.com forward slash podcast. So for this time and until next time, my name is John O'Leary and this is your day. Do more good and live inspired. I want you to think about how much life has changed in the last 10 years, professionally, technologically, politically, globally, in your relationships. Think about how much change you have experienced, how different life is. Well, for the last 10 consecutive years, Keeley Companies has been named a top workplace by St. Louis Post-Dispatch. Their most important assets are their people also known as the Keelians, and are credited as the backbone of their business. You can learn more about the Keeley Company's dedication to their employees by visiting keeleycompanies.com.